recorded live. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear, places to dive, and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed Episode 122 is recorded live July 5th, 2012. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson, and here's some of the things we're going to be covering this week. Scuba Diver Yanked, Warm Shrews, and a New Ocean. Along with that, we'll be talking about some freshwater diving. But before we get into that, I'd like to welcome my co-host for this week. We have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Doing very well. Glad to be here, even though it is a little hot, and I'd probably be diving. Yeah, a little toasty. A good reason to be underwater. Absolutely. And all the way from the East Coast... Jim Schultz. How are you doing today, Jim? I'm just great, thanks. That is awesome. Glad to be back online with you. Ah, it's nice having you guys back. Yeah, I, I was solo last week. Yeah, I missed the show, and I missed a good one. Yeah, I yeah. missed it in more ways than one. <laughs> so, uh, before we get into the news, Jim, how, how's the weather been on the East Coast? Is it toasty like we're having here in the Midwest? Oh, man, it's been uh, temperatures in the high 90s, and unfortunately... There have been thousands of people without power since Friday night when a severe windstorm came through and really decimated some areas. Yeah, something All I don't know. All straight line winds, but it was it was wicked. Yeah, uh, Dave uh, Tunneman from the chat room, he got uh, caught in some of that weather, and last I knew, he still didn't have power. I told him all he needed to do was, uh, you know, breathe underwater, and he'd be all fine. He wouldn't even notice it. Uh, he, but he said something about only having 6,300 cubic feet of air, so he's going to run out. So let's go ahead and get started right on into the news. First article up this week is the Costa Concordia captain is freed from his house arrest. Um, the captain of the Costa Concordia was released Thursday from house arrest by Italian judges who ordered him not to leave his hometown while the case against him continues. Uh, he's accused of causing the accident that resulted in as many as 32 people's death. The magistrate in the Tuscan town uh, who's handling the case, said uh, he would no longer have to remain confined to his home, but would have to remain in the town. Uh, this also means he's no longer bound by the strict conditions of house arrest, which prevent him from communicating with anyone apart from his lawyer and close family members. I don't know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of speechless. I'm, I'm amazed. They've, they've, you know, Is that just how they do it in other parts of the world? You know, If you, you don't actually go to jail, you just kind of get left in your house? Have they formally charged him with anything? <clears throat> Is it accused of, but I don't know. You know, if you got a charge against you. you well, you know. It, you can get out as long as you've got bail. Then you're now house arrest. Well, I mean, that's kind of how we do it here, but I don't even think they've charged him. You're right. I think they just kind of are holding him there until they figure out what they're going to do with him. Over here, by now, they would have at least figured out what's the worst case scenario and how much time he's going to get. Yeah. And it really doesn't give us any indication, so I am sort of curious if anybody would know that. And I'm really curious where he told about, you know, he, he he made that movement, that maneuver, because he was told to. And if he's the captain, I just wonder who told the captain what to do. Well, probably the guy who, but the only person who could really tell you what to do is the one who pays your checks. That's what you would think. But whether that happened or not, you know, not too sure. Hey, we have uh, Jeff's in the chat room. Hey, Jeff and Paul. And then next up, we have angler yanked, yanked scuba diver to the surface. A biologist was collecting data in 55 feet just off of Key West last month when she felt a tug on the spool line. She was playing out. 45 seconds later, she was at the surface, getting screamed at by an irate fisherman who told the researcher they were responsible for ruining his favorite fishing spot. The biologist told the fisherman she needs to go back down to decompress, but by the time the fisherman released the line, she'd already had two bad headaches. Uh, she was treated in a boat and taken to the hospital. I don't know if you've ever been to Key West, but considering the character there, the biologist should just be glad the guy pulled her to the surface without I was wearing clothes. <laughs> Doesn't say anything about a dive flag, and did he violate that? And if he did, how come she did not file charges? It's a good question. 
and it's pretty skimpy. They need to give us some more information here. Well, she was at uh, 55 feet down. Yeah. If all of a sudden you started having a tug on your line, would you hold on to it? Well, depends on how it was hooked into you. Yeah, because she said she was uh, on a spool line. She was playing out. So I guess if she had the spool snapped, huh? Well, again, it didn't say if she had a dive flag or not. Yeah. And I'm curious about how he's, you know, she's responsible for ruining his fishing spot. <laughs> his fishing spot. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Well, well, maybe, maybe he if, thought he if it was a flag up on first. Was that Jim? So maybe he thought he had a mermaid at first. Yeah, he's just upset it wasn't. Maybe he did think she was a mermaid and she was eating his fish. I think that she needed to have some of those scuba toys we're going to look at later, and he'd have changed his mind real quick. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll know the ones I'm talking about when we get there. <laughs> I'd like to see some more follow-up on this, so. Yeah, that, that's the thing is you get these little articles and they just tease and you can never find anything out about them. Yeah, because we've all got experience or we know somebody in the club, like from last year, who in fact did get yanked up by his dive flag and the boaters were really non-apologetic. That, that is way out to me. Yeah. That's where you start calling the Coast Guard and, or the DNR or the sheriff or anybody who's around and say, write on the ticket. Yeah. Maybe that's a good reason to carry that slate and crayon so you can at least get their uh, their numbers because I can't remember that many numbers for that long. So I'd have to write it down. Yeah, that, that's why you need to have an underwater camera. You can just yes, quick snap a photo. Yeah. Or go back down to the bottom and just write it to sand. In the sand. Uh, well, in the you know, the way, we, the way fishermen mark shipwrecks for us. Yeah. Put yeah, in the water. In Pawpaw, that, the, the letters would have to be about 20 feet high. Yeah. And then it uh, looks like a new wreck for diving. The USS Mohawk uh, sinking happened this last week. We have a, two different articles, one talking about it going to be sunk, and the next one talking about it after it sunk. Well, I thought it was a 165-foot vessel near us. I'm all for it. Oh, this would be very a Very interesting photos of it going down. Yeah, interesting photos of it going down, and then just a description of uh, the wreck from what it's from once it was down there, what I, what I really liked was the description of, I'll turn off that sound of that video playing. What I really liked was the description of some of the damage that happened to it as it went down. Uh, a lot of wood planking was coming off. They had left uh, some lifeboats hanging on it and they were kind of tore up. Maybe they expected it to go down a little slower. Well, yeah. Or, or maybe that's just what happens on wrecks and we just don't realize it. Uh, let's see, what, what do they have to say about the wreck? Um, it's in southwest Florida. Uh, the Keys, underwater enthusiasts, are uh, going to have a chance to explore it. 165-foot World War II-era vessel sunk 20 miles off the coast of Fort Myer, and that was beginning of this week. And it's part of Lee County's Artificial Reef Building Program. Uh, the ship was uh, commissioned in 1935, played an integral part of the war effort, sweeping Atlantic Ocean for German U-boats and giving the all-clear signal to begin the Normandy invasion on June 6, 1944. Uh, it's supposed to sit in about 90 feet of water. The ship, with cannons propeller intact, uh, was sunk using a series of explosives handled by the Lee County Marine Services Program and a Key West company called Reef Makers. It's a fair bit offshore, isn't it? That's what I was thinking, but maybe that's how far off you got to get to get that deep. I don't know. We could get 90 feet out here quicker than that. Yeah, we certainly could. Yeah, we sure could. Don't you think it's odd they use the term cannons? I, I'm not. It doesn't sound like having a modern ship have cannons. I, I thought you'd call them deck guns or something. Is cannons well, correct name? Well, it's probably the same people who call uh, scuba tanks oxygen tanks. <laughs> I mean, if it's bigger than a pistol, then it must be a cannon. I'm just it's, curious. It just sounded odd. They said technical divers are going to love it, but I, I don't know why they're thinking it's technical at the depth they've got it at. Unless they're talking about well, penetration diving. Penetration diving is technical. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So if, At the depth, 90 feet to the bottom will preclude most recreational divers? I don't think so. No. No. Oh, no. And they did say the two big issues will be the distance from shore, which we talked about, and the related cost for fuel of getting there. Then they said the depth, but 90 feet is not a bad depth for wreck diving. Yeah, it's a nice depth. No, and they're going to have cattle boats. I mean, you're going to be able to get in a boat with uh, 30, 40 divers on it, and they'll go out there. 
this guy is not a diver. It will be available to advanced divers only since most divers are only certified to go to 60 feet. Yeah, he, he took a lot of stuff out of context, I'm sure, that even though I know the tables go down to 125 for recreational, uh, I, I've heard people try and say that you're not really certified to that depth. But Yeah, until you get the advanced course and take the deep diver, right? <laughs> right. Extra cert for extra money? That, that's it. You got it. <laughs> well, even then, you're not, not until you take the other, the other course. Okay, but, what about people like me who took this a hundred years ago and we did all this crap back in that course? We didn't pay anything but one price. Well, w- w- since you're using those stone air tanks, then I mean, you're, you're going to go that deep. Anyway. Those, were, those were water buffalo lungs that were being able to be compressed. <laughs> back, any C card that's carved on a stone tablet is good for whatever you want to do. <laughs> you just hang on to the C card and go down. Yeah, you, that's right. You, you can always just etch another zero on the end of it anyway. Yeah, so I, they, I'm sure that the author was given information that somebody wanted them to use, not necessarily what's true. It was interesting looking at their uh, destination distances. 80% of the charters are on nine, 9 miles, 15 20 to 20 miles, and 5% go out further because of the money and the time. It's all business. So they're saying they go out farther because it's more expensive? They can make more? No, no, they don't. They're, they're saying a lot of things will keep this from being a popular destination. Because he was saying 80% of their charter dives are nine miles out, only 15% are 20 miles out, and only 5% go further. And well, they, that'd be, they're going to be, what, 20 miles out? That, that's going to be, that'd be the same thing for uh, us here in Lake Michigan. You know, from the St. Joe Pierhead to, uh, you know, Max Rec, what's that, about eight miles? Yeah, but if you want to do a ferry boat from that dock right offshore, you're talking two and a half miles. Right. Or three miles. Yeah, but it, it takes time. If you, you know, if, if it's about economics and, you know, if you can get an afternoon crew and a morning crew, and you need to not have a whole lot of travel time and distance involved, which makes me wonder why they chose that spot where it's at. That's Unless it's strictly for the fish and fishermen as opposed to divers. So they had to compromise on a location. And it's, it may have been 90 feet deep, but how much superstructure, meaning how much clearance over the wreck did they have? And that would be the big one. How much do you want over a ship so you have good, you know, uh, the rest of the craft ships can go over you without being an interference? Yeah. Well, and then how long before uh, we have a good storm that kind of cracks it up or something? Yeah. I mean, Florida, did did you see some of those photos that they had of the uh, some of the caves that we had gone diving in in the spring were flooded, you know, 10 feet over the banks? I saw that. Yeah, Jenny Springs looked like a... Jenny Springs, yeah, the whole thing was flooded out. Yeah, and that, that has to be terrible, not only for people living there, but also for the Viz. A lot of times when you've got... Yeah, you're going to have bad Viz initially, but... Uh, somebody's got audio. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you when you click on that next one to the artificial reef, it gives up verbiage real quick. I was just trying to get ahead of the game there. Yeah, well, we we kind of already covered that one. <laughs> that, but that's. But I was talking about the drainage. If you've got yeah. vegetation and stuff, it may flood, but then it it seeps through it. When you got concrete and steel and junk like that, then you you get a lot more runoff that makes the visibility terrible. A long period of time. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, if the the ground is absorbent, then uh, that kind of helps it. Yeah. Well, some parts of Florida were in drought conditions just because of the aquifer hadn't been flowing. So I know some of this water is welcome down there. Oh, I'm sure it is. Yeah, and and we could use it up here in the Midwest, just provided we don't get it as all as one big flood. All I know is I'm glad we live up here by fresh water supply because. Many years from now, that's going to be one of the most valuable commodities you can get is good water. More valuable than gold. And good water supply. So the next article we have is Tiny Shrews Warm Up Before a Cold Dive. And and we're talking about the small little mammals, not the larger shrews. You mean female? I mean... Uh, no, I, I wouldn't say uh, that. Uh, okay. Scientists investigated how shrews known as the smallest diving mammal, coped with the challenges of diving. Uh, Larger mammals are known to boost their chance of finding prey by staying cool to save energy and allows them to dive as long as possible. 
Shrews actually did the opposite. They raised their body temperature by one and a half degrees Celsius and took shorter dives in cold water. You know, reading this, it reminded me of us when we get ready for a dive. That's, that's one of my techniques is get as warm as possible before the dive and don't stay in too long. Uh, they were expecting it to be the opposite, again, with the body temperature being lower to allow for less oxygen use. And But it, it makes sense when you consider how small they are. It wouldn't take too long for you to be able to freeze them into an ice cube. I was looking at a couple of the pictures. One, I don't think I've ever seen one. So do we know where these shrews are at? Uh, this one's out of the UK. And to me, a shrew is just kind of like a combination mouse and mole. Yeah, Yeah, I was looking at the one here. Yeah, and I don't know if I've seen a shrew around here. Maybe they're a European unique thing. I, I'm looking at this one picture here, and I wonder if that's an aquarium or is that a real live shot? I'm going to guess that's in an aquarium that they were doing it for, because it just has an aquarium look to it, doesn't it? Well, that's why I was curious. I mean, it looked too good of a shot. Yeah. How do you get the little guy to dive right in front of it? <laughs> True. You, you just have to hold like a little bug on a stick and wave it in front of them. Did you see that little part, how they, they can smell underwater by putting a, an air bubble out their nose? And then drawing it back in. Yeah, yeah uh, and that, that's freaking awesome. Yeah, that that, that seemed, for, for me, that would hurt. I do not want to be drawing an air through my nose. but <laughs> Okay, an air bubble to your nose. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also one shot of it, they it looks like you can see that they've got air trapped in their fur. So I imagine that gives them a little bit of insulation as well. Uh, although they live on land, they frequently hunt underwater, diving to catch prey such as dragonfly, nymphs, crayfish, and snail. I always think it's funny that those guys have to eat their weight almost every day. Yeah, they have to eat their body weight and, and food. That is a lot of work. But Their heartbeat must be phenomenal. See, I only eat half my body weight every day. Half your body weight? <laughs> Does that count snacks? Oh, yeah. I have to count snacks for, for half. And then if a uh, little shrew going down isn't deep enough, then they have the bone-eating, acid-splitting alien worm of the deep. You notice that's a female, too. Not there's, there's anything no, no, enticing or not enticing or otherwise. But. Well, it, it's female <laughs> surrounded by a harem of uh, males. Yeah, inside a gelatinous tube. Gelatinous tube. Yeah, this really appeals to me. <laughs> <laughs> so it is uh, known as the Osedax worm, and it lives inside the carcasses of dead whales. And biologists were trying to figure out how it could break down the bones since the worms have no mouth. University of San Diego scientists found that the worms had an enzyme that secretes a bone-melting acid, which is concentrated on the part that digs into their food. Melting the bones releases fat and oils, which are digested by bacteria that live inside the worm. Only the females are equipped with this terrifying bioweapon. The males are tiny, and each female is surrounded by a harem of them inside a gelatinous tube. It sounds like a plot for a good sci-fi movie. Well, I'm curious. It said they live inside the carcasses of a dead whale. Okay, what about the live whales? Where do they come from? And how do they get to the carcass of the dead whale? A very good question. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the the, the carcasses can't be that close, so. Some one, National Geographic or somebody did a, a shot where it showed they had a camera, a time-lapse shot of a whale carcass, and it was unbelievable how quick it got devoured. Well, I'm looking at this. Did you see the video right above it? Yeah. It's sort of interesting-looking, bone-eating sea worm. I'm looking for the, the size of the other ones. I can see that little mass around the stem. I wonder if that's where the guys are. That's, that's what I was thinking, that, you know, she's – or. She, I'm assuming, is there right there on the bone, and then it's just kind of, you know, releasing enzymes or dissolving it, and then it just kind of sucks it back in, absorbs it. But yeah, that's how does something that distance? I mean, does it smell? Does it float in a current? You know, is it like uh, a spore? Who knows? Yeah, it almost looks like sea anemone out there waving the tentacles, doesn't it? Yeah. I tried turning the volume down so I could look at it, and I got some some bone structure. It's quite interesting. Not what I would have thought of as like a burrowing worm or anything. Looks like its head's embedded into the body, and the rest of the stuff is just the tail or whatever you want to call it out in the, in the current. Yeah. Well, so uh, hmm. 
just keeps proving you got to watch out for the female of the species. <laughs> well, and the other thing is you don't, you don't have to make up stories because the real ones are uh, just as amazing. <laughs> That's true. Like you said, sci-fi doesn't necessarily catch up to what really is out there. Okay. Well, and and now we have, did you see that there's a new ocean or suspected to be ocean that uh, could be dove in? Maybe. Yeah, I was saying that it's going to be a little hard to get there through the methane, though. Yeah, we were complaining about a you know a twenty mile or fifty mile boat ride. Uh, this one is probably what a fifty billion miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can you imagine cost of gas to get to that sucker? And yeah, round round trip might take you well, four or five years. I'm afraid you might run out of air before you get to the <laughs> surface. <laughs> yeah, so this one is uh, scientists are have are doing some more. Uh, calculations in determining that it is possible for there an ocean to be on the moon of Saturn Titan. Uh, they said it is, uh, let's see here, interesting planet if it were out and orbiting on its own, still it's even more backbencher does it just fine. So they, this is from data about two weeks ago from the Cassini spacecraft orbiting Saturn, revealed that Titan's surface has become home to numerous methane leaks. One of them as large as Utah's Great Salt Lake. Now comes a paper published in the Journal of Science, persuadingly suggesting that Titan probably has a vast globe-girdling ocean beneath the surface, too. And unlike the methane-filled lakes above, this one is made of ordinary water. That has been very implications as not to the understanding of Titan, but for our hunt of life elsewhere in the cosmos. So they, they said it's, uh, they've spotted another place where water is abundant. It's amazing how they can do that from Earth and tell you that kind of stuff using their satellites and their uh, remote-operated vehicles for space. <laughs> it is, you know, just how they look at light and, you know, what what's, uh, they, they see reflecting off. Yeah, how they can make that determination. Yep. It's, it's really wild to think of, look at the stuff we're looking at in the deep oceans we haven't seen before. I mean, it, it's operating and devoid of oxygen, but it's in methane, it's high pressure, high temperature, and yet you go to these planets, you can't imagine they don't have some type of life form. Yeah. As I'm reading through the article here, they're, they're talking about that. You know, at one point, they thought it was just methane on the surface and it was a solid core. They have a way of doing a calculation where they're able to determine that a completely liquid core would be a coefficient, they're saying, is a 1.5. The team has conducted the uh, Cassini study calculated a love number of about one of, of about 0.6 for Titan. They said uh, that makes Titan consistent with a bias about 6% rock and 40% water. They said the oceans must be fairly thick, a few hundred kilometers, and must lie relatively close to the surface, beginning no further down than 100 kilometers. And if you got water, you got hydrogen. Well, you think about it, this is like a fuel planet. If you're doing yeah. inner you know, uh, get out to those outer planets and you need to refuel. You suck that tube down there and start sucking up water. Yeah, you pull up water and you can make all sorts of stuff with it. That distance is going to be really something, though. You figure what? We're about 92 million miles from the sun, and this guy is 869 million. So that's another 780 million miles away. Yep. yep. Heck of a trip. What's 100 million miles between friends? Yeah. Well, you got to get some frequent flyer miles for that. Oh, man. Uh, they're, they're saying that uh, it's going to be in liquid form, which means that if it is water, it would be above freezing, or at least uh, between the pressure and temperatures going to be a liquid form. So that could be a combination of pressure and then movement keeping it liquid. So I'm, I'm still thinking we'd want a dry suit. Yeah, very dry suit. <laughs> So that does it for Scuba the News. We do have a couple of videos, or actually a video, uh, two different ways here. We'll paste this into the chat room so they can follow along. Uh, videos of a release of lobster. So divers are releasing baby lobsters into the Plymouth Sound. Hundreds of baby lobsters have been released into Plymouth's water as part of a major marine conservation project. Team of scuba divers led successful effort just off Penley Point. The group of divers from the British Subaquatics Club were enlisted to ensure the little creatures made their way into a new wild home. Mark Pierce, 40, uh, visits a licensee of the Corporation Shipwreck, a British gunship which sank off Penley Point, Plymouth in 1691. 
around 800 lobsters were taken 18 meters below the surface in special trays, which keep them separate. Chambers prevent naturally cannibalistic creatures from eating one another in transit. And if you watch the video, you can see the trays. They look they looked almost like uh, dehydrating uh, food dehydrator trays with like little spots where each one had a tiny lobster. Now, are they all that color? They show some of them are what I would consider to be lobster colored and some are white. So is it just because of their diet they haven't colored out yet? Or are they actually seeding them with albino lobster? Well, I think whenever you have both crayfish and or lobsters, the crustaceans, I think they actually molt. And when they do that, the color changes. Oh, so since they're so young and growing rapidly, they're probably just in that frequent phase of change. I've always thought it fascinating on those myself, the difference between a crayfish and a lobster. And because they look the same, mm. have you noticed that? Or have you believe no, that's I, true? I, I, I think they almost look identical to me. Now, I looked that up just for fun. Yeah, it says... <clears throat> and it said crawfish are freshwater crustaceans, while lobsters are marine crustaceans. Lobsters are cannibalistic under pressure and eat their own skin while moting, while crawfish show no such habits. Crawfish eat dead animals and plants, while lobsters eat live plants and animals. And crayfish were traditionally eaten in the south parts of South America, Peru, and Australia, whereas lobsters, more common in the European continent, particularly flavored or favored in France and the Netherlands. And their crawfish belong to the superfamily of, and I'm not even going to pronounce it. <laughs> They're both of different families, and that's a summary of the difference. But it's quite interesting when you look those up. See, I'll, I'll eat either. I'm not, I'm I'm equal opportunity carnivore. I want the ones with the big claws. Yeah, oh that that those are good with butter. Yeah, the spiny ones I'll eat too, but I like the claws. So pretty much freshwater marines the big difference. Well, I say if you ever go looking for them and, and try to catch them, you know, the, maybe the bait that you use is going to tell you what you're going to catch. And if you live bait, you're going to eat your lobster maybe. Oh, that's true. So that's the video. Go ahead. Head on over to the show website. Usually by about Saturday, I have those posted, and you'll be able to click on the link and get to see what it looks like to release of tiny lobsters. And they, they are a, small. They are, they are tiny, about the size of your thumbnail. And then we've got a couple potentially cool scuba gear. Let me pull that back up here. This first one kind of reminds me of a James Bondish item. This is actually something that was manufactured. I don't know how readily available it is. It's a four-barreled underwater dart gun. The Russian-designed weapon fires four, four-and-a-half long steel darts made to take down underwater enemies from as far as 65 feet away, which is much farther than bullets are able to travel in water. I wish they had shown something about the propulsion system. There used to be a, another item you could buy years ago called the gyro gun. Uh-huh. And the cartridge, it was it's basically a rocket-propelled weapon. It worked really well underwater, and I was curious if this is like that gyro gun. Yeah, that that would be, uh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. And that's what, if this lady had had this with her, she could have probably done some damage to that irate fisherman. Oh, yeah. She could make some fish food for him. Oh, certainly. Him. Well, you figure this works well uh, underwater or above water at uh, close range, I'm sure. 65 feet away, she could have just aimed it right at the surface. Now, the visibility, wouldn't you have been able to see that boat as well? I mean, I keep thinking in... Uh, I'll hurt, for sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I keep thinking in, in where we dive. You know, you, the frequently you can't see the bottom and the surface at the same time. So one slathering of uh, potential cool scuba gear. I want one. Yeah. And then to go with your four-darted pistol is you just need to get an underwater uh, submarine. The U.S. What's that, Mac? I want one of those too. The uh, the deep sea submarine is getting its makeover. We talked about this a few weeks back. Uh, they they're rebuilding the Alvin, the United States' deepest diving manned vehicle. Uh, it's a celebrated a recent milestone with a year-long upgrade, unveiling a newly tested titanium sphere that will ferry three people to twenty-one thousand three hundred and twenty-five feet or 6,500 meters deep into the ocean before the upgrade Alvin could go to a maximum depth of 14,760 feet or 4,500 meters. So uh, what's that make it? Almost another 30% deeper? 
At 6,500 meters, it'll reach 98% of the ocean. Engineers tested the 11,000-pound personnel sphere, which is 5,000 kilograms, on June 22nd at a Northrood Grumman facility in Annapolis, Maryland, to ensure that the silvery capsule can withstand the crushing pressures of deep sea. Uh, Safety standards require the sphere can survive the trip to 26,250 feet, or 8,000 meters, a full 24% deeper than Alvin will ever dive. So what... What is the deepest that the ocean is? I mean, didn't they just do it? Yeah, that's the one they just talked about at the, at the bottom of that, Mariana's Trench, uh-huh. 7,062 meters. That was on June 27th. Well, so it's really, they're pressure testing it to that depth, but it will never go that depth. Well, they wanted it. Yeah, that's your, it's like your, you go to this depth, but it'll go down deeper. Your pressure, I'm trying to think of what the term for it is. You know, your crush depth. Yeah. Is usually a lot more than you're going to be working at, which is the way you want it. Yeah, exactly. You're hoping that you don't this, this you, reach the actual real crush depth. Yeah, you'd like like a 50% edge there, but uh, so they they are sure to go there, but that's not designed to stay there. Because Challenger went to 10,890 meters. Cameron did. Remember you talked about that? Yeah. Yeah. And also in this article, they talk about the Chinese submersible, the uh, Xinyang. Right. You had that whole article on that when it was talking about just getting during their uh, their initial test dives. Uh, so excellent. Yeah, I, I I would like to have one of these. You know, poke around, do some sightseeing. I think I'd prefer something like the uh, old Jacques Cousteau used to have saucer. You go down to a couple of hundred feet because that's really where we want to play. Oh yeah. And surface support for this guy cost an arm and a leg. I betcha. Yeah. Well, then those those the portholes they have. I don't know how much you're going to be seeing out of that. I don't know. Did you saw the comment at the end of it? They said, you know, you can do the same thing through robots and ROVs, but it's important to send humans. It's like, why go to the Grand Canyon if you can go buy a video of it? And they say putting an eye and a brain at the bottom of the ocean gives you a perspective that you don't get from a monitor. Yeah, even, and we know we're going to see 3D video and stuff, but uh, it, part of it is also the PR. It's hard to get people excited about something a robot did. Yeah, well, we polished off the news there. Did you did you see that last item under that column where it talked about the Baltic Sea sunken UFO begins to smell like an elaborate scam? No. If you follow your link down, not your link, but what we were just reading, go down under more from uh, MSNBN, duh, MSNBC. Uh-huh. It's the third or second item down. I thought I'd mention it because we talked about it week before or last. Okay, let's see if we get it all the way down. Did you see it? Uh, Doesn't matter. I'm sending you the link. Yeah, just send me the link. I'm I'm not finding it, or it's rotated to a new. Came to you. Okay, here we'll take a look. The Baltic Sea sunken UFO begins to smell like an elaborate scam. Ocean explorers who discovered a huge UFO-shaped object in the floor of the Baltic Sea last year are having a heck of a time figuring out what it is. A suspiciously hard time, some would say. The Swedish divers who called themselves Open X Team or Ocean X Team claim the object is giving off electrical interference that keeps foiling attempts to investigate it. Anything electric out there, the satellite phone as well stopped working when they're above the object. And we got about 200 meters and it turned on again and we get back over the object, it didn't work. Yeah, I, I actually heard something on the news today. Uh, somebody talking about this. And it's convenient that... Nothing that could record it works while it's over it. And you, hmm. So what is the agenda somebody has for this just recognition? Or a lot of video hits for, for PR and for getting all the people to. It's, so they, like, they're going to make uh, money off $3 worth of Google ads? <laughs> click, click, click. Yeah. Worth money. It is interesting, though. Hmm. In this case, a team clearly has a lot to gain from an extraordinary claim. Mr. Lindbergh is already making plans to take wealthy tourists down in the submarine to view the object. If he had used a rock hammer to break off a small piece of the object, a geologist could have determined whether it was a pillow basalt in a few minutes, but it turned out to be pillow basalt and not a mystery, mysterious UFO object. He would not have much of a business plan, would he? So that's it. Tourism. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't think too many people are gonna be that excited about going down. I could change his name to Mr. Limburger. It smells a bit. Yeah. So a little follow up from previous articles. Okay, I'm gonna add that to the show notes as well. 
So for the final time, that does it for the news. <laughs> we'll get out of the news. And uh, as always, make sure you visit our website, scubaobsessed.com. Also, you can visit us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash scubaobsessed. And then we get to talk about last week's dive. And actually, it seems like we have two or three weeks worth of dives, even though it's only been one week. Uh, let's see. Who, who had the first dive? Uh, Jim, when did you make your dive? Uh, I did mine last Sunday. Last Sunday. Okay, so we did it Saturday. So, uh, so Mac, what did we have? We had the first dive was on the... Well, the 28th and the 29th, we dove in Niles. The 30th, we did the Muskegon and the Outer Barrier. Uh-huh. Then on July 1st, we did the Niles River dive. And then on July 3rd, we did the Niles River. And on the 4th was the Havana. And then I goofed off a couple of days. <laughs> just just uh, to dry out mostly. Which doesn't take long in this weather. Oh, that's for sure. But uh, the the Muskegon, uh, I thought that was an excellent dive. I love that outer barrier, and we need video. Yes. Yeah. So uh, what what Mac's talking about is after we did the the Muskegon, and the Muskegon was uh, a dive we've done. We do it about once a year. Uh, it's a nice shallow dive. I, I would consider it to be a fairly beginner dive. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's an interesting wreck, an old sand sucker that. Uh, uh, I believe it caught fire and got pushed into Lake Michigan, and then a few months later, actually ran aground. This is uh, post 1900s, wasn't it? Yeah, 1910. I say, yeah, 1910 for it the J.D. Marshall, which is the other one near it, sank in 1911. That was, I believe, trying to salvage the Muskegon. Yep, that was a lumber hooker put out to get material from it, and then sank, and that one killed people. Yeah, yeah, nobody died on the Muskegon. Yeah, uh, but yeah, and the, but it's it's a it's a nice dive. You get to see a lot. It's a it it the age of the ship. You've got a nice hybrid of steel and wood. So you had like wood decking and supports, but then you had a lot of steel plate, steel objects. Four bladed prop in the aft end. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize that's what, what that was. I was because I was pointing out to Jim. Jim Kleeman went with us in a dive. We also had uh, Bob and Kurt, and I was pointing out to Jim where you could see where the sand had moved, and there are no zebra mussels in the bottom of that prop. Right. But I didn't really realize that was the prop. I don't know. Right. It's a four-blade one, and you can only see the tips of the of the top because it, it's buried in there by the sand now. Yeah, so a uh, unique spot. I would have loved to have had a camera just so you could share that. It's and I fun thought, to go through the stacks in the boiler, isn't it? Well, somebody said you could go through the stacks in the boiler, but any object I saw that looked boilerish with you know heat exchangers and stuff, you were not going through there. I wasn't. Yeah, there's a couple of places you can actually penetrate and go through. And, and not only that, but not only was it direct, but it was a grubbing dive because we got legal trash off of it, remember? Yes, there was a, and I, I need to, Jim needs to post a picture. Uh, there was a tackle box. A very well-stocked tackle box. Yep, yeah. And it was it felt way too heavy. I was I was convinced we were going to get up and it was going to have something like somebody had just thrown some trash in a tackle box, but it was uh, very well-stocked. So yes, some fisherman was. cried real heavy <laughs> when he lost that one. And what? You got a nice anchor? Yep. There was some modern anchors that had been uh, lost down there, and we, we got a couple of those. Yeah, we got three of them, actually. Three. Yep. So that was nice. Oh, absolutely. That was icing on the cake. Yeah. Yep. So we're just, just picking up trash off the, the bottom there. And then we went over to the breakwater, which if you go in Michigan City, uh, like in St. Joe and, and the Michigan side, we don't have a, you know, our our uh, channels and piers go right out in the lake and there's nothing off the end, but it must be being at the Southern part of the lake. If they didn't have that, they probably have some nice high waves that would break into the shore there. So they've got a breakwater. I don't know. Would you say that'd be about 300 feet long? Uh, a lot more than 300. 300. Okay. Maybe 500, 600. Yeah. It, it's quite long out there. Yeah. I think there's a, a aerial shot in one of those pictures we had. Yeah. But uh, a nice breakwater. And what was the depth on, on those? Uh, about 20 feet? We started out at 17 in the middle, and we went left, and it went uh, 28 feet just before it went around the bend to get to the channel. Uh-huh. And, uh, you guys went to the right, and what was the deepest you got onto the right side? Uh, I, I'm going to say maybe 23, but that was more if you went in between the boulders. I mean, they're, they're boulders the size of oh, you know, semis. Huge out there. Yeah, just gigantic. And there was a slight current moving, and we were, Jim and I were swimming up into the current. And uh, you could, if you weren't careful, uh, get drawn into the, the boulders. But what I was really impressed with was just the visibility. This is a, if you think that 
Lake Michigan is always a low visibility cold weather dive, then this is a spot you need to. This you could have dove. I, I would still think you'd want a wetsuit, but you could have done that without a wetsuit. Yeah, you could have. Visibility was, I'm going to say 20, 25 feet. We said 15 to 20, and that's for sure, because I could see Bob and Kirk at different areas away from me, and I could see them clearly. Yeah, but just at, part of it was the depth, but you had the sunlight was just rippling down, and you could see it off the sand. And then fish were everywhere. I don't think I've seen more a more variety of fish in one dive than I did on that. I could have And I, big ones. Yes. There were some huge fish out there. And I need to pull out the fish identification charts because I thought I knew my fish, but there were some. I mean, we, we had the most numerous were the gobies, but there were plenty of others. Uh, I, I think I saw a bass. Uh, I don't know, would you say with a walleye or muskie? Uh, so you had both. Uh, you had smallmouth and largemouth bass because you had like the tiger stripes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not see any Chinook or any salmon. Uh, yeah, a lot of good panfish in that first 10 to 15 feet depth. After that, you had the real big ones. You did have some suckers down in those crab, cab, um, the caverns that you wanted to go into but were smart enough not to go into. Because mm-hmm. you could get into it, getting back out could be an interest. Well, we, we poked our heads in a little bit. I, you know, I found uh, different things, uh, some umbrellas. We found, I got some Frisbees. I got a perver- the fr- proverbial golf ball. Well, we found that sunken wave runner. Yeah, on your side, you found a wave runner. And what else? Uh, serving sections of a big sailboat mast that I think is salvageable. Yep. And then that big aluminum, like either uh, gangplank or gangway. Mm-hmm. So there's a, you know, if I have a place to put that, that's a couple of pounds of stuff we could bring up and pay for the dive. Yeah, a little bit of scrap there. Yep. And then you had all sorts of... Um, Looks like either shipwreck and or old pier lumber because you had the old bolts and stuff through it. Yeah, what my what my thought was, Mac, is just we might be seeing the evolution of that breakwater. Yep, that could have been the other part. Where it originally started off as pilings, and so they would have driven pilings and then made some sort of cribbing and uh, like a seawall, and then they'd have, they'd have piled smaller stone in the middle of it, and then as that broke down. They piled larger stone, then somebody at some point uh, did a concrete cap on the top. So, but just a, an interesting dive. I, I think this is a good, if, you know, I would take a green diver, you know, who recently certified and wanted to go in Lake Michigan, I would take them on both of these. Oh, absolutely. In a heartbeat. Yeah, this, this would this would get you hooked. You know, uh, and, the, and the weather was beautiful. It it. Yeah, it was toasty warm, but it made you appreciate getting in the water and then the water temperature. You know, there's a couple of times I had to take my gloves off and, you know, I didn't even really notice it. I have my gloves on. I think what spoils us there, though, is it's quick in, quick out, meaning you can launch a small trip down the channel. You're almost at the dive site right there. And at the barrier, you are right there. Yeah. Meaning you can get out and back in, do your dive, and you're not burning a lot of time. If we talked about time is money. Yeah, well, time is money and then also air. You know, these aren't these aren't deep depths, so you're not, you know, racing to the bottom, getting four or five minutes of bottom time, and then coming back up. You actually have some a reasonable amount of time you can go and explore and see things. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, beautiful. I mean, you know, warm and in good viz. So something that we don't always get to say about Lake Michigan or uh, or Midwest diving, but uh, some some great diving. And then Jim, you're on uh, the East Coast. Uh, you got a dive in. Yes, I did. I was actually going to get a dive in last Wednesday, uh, but the boat we were going out on had some mechanical problems, so I ended up going back on Sunday, went out of Atlantic City, and dove a wreck. I I always knew it as the Flower, F-L-O-U-R, wreck, uh, but the official name is the Alamorante. It was a package passenger freighter built in 1909 that sunk in 1918 had 105 passengers and crew on it, and uh, was involved in a collision, and only five lives were lost. Uh, It ended up at about 70 feet of water. And then uh, in 1938, they wire-dragged it to cut the top of it off as a navigational hazard or to eliminate the navigation hazard. Then uh, during World War II, it was spotted by a blimp looking for... Uh, German submarines, 
and they came out and dropped five depth charges on it uh, until they realized it was a known wreck, and then it got wire-dragged again in the 50s to take it down a little further from navigation hazards. And 70 feet of water, and still rises up about, there's some pieces that come up about 30 feet off the bottom, uh, three big boilers still intact, uh, a lot of broken plates and the hull split open. Uh, great dive for lobsters. Uh, a lot of, well, I think they pulled about a dozen flounder off of there, and the smallest of the flounder was 18 inches long. So there was fresh flounder. Uh, a lot of spear fishing was done on it. My partner and I, we went down the first dive. We had about 25 feet of visibility. We swam around, spotted the boilers, uh, just kind of looked around, explored the wreck a little bit. And the second dive, we went back. Viz was down to about 15. So he and I started uh, grubbing near the boilers. And between the two of us, we came up with uh, three uh, anchors, uh, grappling hooks, actually, grapple-type anchors. And between 20 and 25 pounds of fishing weights, put them in the, in the uh, goodie bag and sent them to the surface on a lift bag. And then we came up, did our deco, or I'm sorry, did our safety stop. We didn't have to do deco. We just did a safety stop. Boat wouldn't, did not allow anybody to do deco. So we did an extended safety stop and uh, finished up the dive. Uh, they popped the hook because we were about the last ones on. We were diving the largest tanks. They popped the hook and picked up the uh, dive master or the mate. Actually, the mate is the one that popped the hook, and he did a ascent on a hang bag. Picked up the mate and uh, went down current and grabbed my lift bag. And we pulled that on and had a great dive. Um, about 45 minutes each time, bottom time, and an hour, hour 15 surface interval. Surface temp was like 72 and bottom temp was about uh, 56, 58. And like I said, 15 to 25 feet of visibility. So first time I've been in the North Atlantic for a number of years and... It was enjoyable, uh, but, uh, you know, the water was awful salty. And I just don't, you know, I'm, I'm not used to that salty water. You know, I, we, we got all the wrecks in the Great Lakes and none of the salt. Yeah. But it was a fun dive. It sounds like a fun dive. Now, yeah, put a now, plug in for the, I'll put a plug in for the, I dove with uh, East Coast Diver Supply, which is changing their name uh, to, uh, I think it's American Diving Supply, and uh, went off a boat called the... Atlantis out of Gardner's Base in Atlantic City, and I plugged both of them. Uh, Atlantis had a great boat, great crew, and uh, they were very accommodating to to the divers they had on board that day. So hats off to the Atlantis crew. Excellent. Now, when when you're diving on wrecks like that, there there's still salvaging going on, isn't there? Oh, all the time, all the time. The, the greatest find of the day uh, was a brand new diver, first ocean dive. Um, the dive master took him under his wing, and once everybody was up uh, from the first group, he and the dive master went into their dive, and uh, he came back with a glass-bottomed tankard or cup. It was about the size of a eight or ten ounce cup, but had a clear glass bottom on it, and we couldn't tell what metal it was made of because it was uh, totally encrusted with marine growth. But I would not be surprised to find that this was a pewter cup, uh, yeah. glass-bottomed, small glass-bottomed tankard, because the Amarante was a mixed freight freighter. A major portion of its cargo was uh, fruit bound for South America, but uh, also had some China uh, and some other mixed freight on board. So I'm hoping the diver who I left the card with will uh, contact me. He was going to try to clear this up and see if there was a ship's name on this tankard. But uh, his first ocean dive, right after being certified, and he comes up with a you know what could be a once in a lifetime artifact. Oh yeah, yeah. If it had a glass bottom, I'd be surprised for it not to be pewter. Yeah. Did they did they make tin with glass? I I would I was I because this story is it always told to me is that they had the glass bottom so that when you were drinking the bar and somebody was going to smack you, you could see them coming at you. That's what I understood. So I, I, I'm you know, thinking if you didn't pony up for the, the pewter one, you probably didn't get the benefit of the glass bottom. Yep. So, uh, you know, 1909 to 1918, the boat went down in 1918. So it uh, 
would be about the right time frame. So, I mean, that was a beautiful find. Even if he never gets the crustacean off of it, the, the marine growth, uh, just being able to clean that glass bottom off and have the rest of it, you know, covered with marine crustaceans, is going to be a beautiful, beautiful mantelpiece. So my congratulations to him for that great find. Nice. And then uh, Mac and I had a dive, it was only a couple days ago, uh, on the Thursday, on Tuesday, the 3rd, uh, we, we went uh, back to the Niles River, uh, not the Niles River, St. Joe River and Niles to a spot we've done some grubbing in the past. And uh, gosh, we emptied two tanks. I think I had over four hours of bottom time. And Mac, did you find anything interesting? Oh, I had a couple of keepers. <laughs> <laughs> the milk bottle uh, of the ones you had there, I think the one I liked the best was the milk bottle with the embossing and the phone number on it, yeah. which is excellent. You had uh, two good two good medicines in there uh, that were definitely keepers. And I hope you uh, put some oil on those bolt cutters because that was pretty nice too. Yeah, the bolt cutters. I was surprised when I came across that. And I was I actually got all the way down to the river. I, I Somehow I, I missed the spots I wanted to hit on my way down on the second dive. And so I popped up real quick. I don't know if you could see me around the bend. And I was right there, even with the outtake. Ah, okay. From the waste There's treatment. There's some neat I'm stuff like, down there. Pardon me? There's some neat stuff down there. Yeah. <clears throat> no, normally, we don't go that far down. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I, I found a lot of uh, tires. Can't tell you how many tires I found. I, I, those are something I'd, I'd like to. What we need to do is have somebody sponsor an ecology dive who actually would have a dumpster there to take some of that stuff. It would be nice to get rid of some of some of those old tires out of the river. They need more than a dumpster. They need a couple because we can fill those suckers up. Well, I I think volume-wise, I probably had three bushel baskets full of junk I took out. In fact, I, I found the lid to a grill that I had flipped upside down, and then I just loaded it with the bottles. And the, the better keepers I put in my catch bag, and then the junk I put in the other. And my thinking was if I got too tired and couldn't, get it up, at least it would be contained yeah. scrap pieces. But uh, you know, anybody who thinks that we have picked that spot clean needs to go diving with us on there. I guarantee you'll get a bottle that you will want to keep out of that river. Just in that small section. We're, we're not talking about a large section of river at all. A 200-foot section, if that. Yeah, and it just, I'm, I'm amazed. Like that milk bottle, I cleaned that up. Did, did you see the photos of it that I had it cleaned up? There was very little wear. You know, normally when you have a, a clear glass bottle and sand, you get a lot of scratches. And that one, I'm going to guess that, you know, did somebody fill that with sand and throw it in or or what that keeps it in that good a condition? And in fact, it, even before it went in, it didn't look like it had been circulated all that long. Not, it didn't have too many uh, refills as a milk bottle when it got thrown in there. A couple tiny chips on the top, a uh, lip. I mean, hardly even noticeable, uh, but the rest of it was real nice. And then the bottom, I'm, I need to do some research on the bottom of the glass. That looks to be a fairly old bottle, it almost like the, like there was a, like they would have blown it into a mold. Is that how they would have done a milk bottle? Yeah, when you start getting the seeds and stuff in it, <clears throat> which is the little pieces of look like air, air bubbles, mm -hmm. that's indicative of an older bottle. But if you look at the three-digit phone number, that gives you a clue right there. You yeah. didn't have a lot of digits in the phone numbers way back there. Right. Yeah. So it tells you they had it phones. <laughs> yeah. But uh, a, a, ni a nice find. Um, what did you do with that spiky looking thing? I, I, I was hoping you'd clean that off to see exactly what it was. Spiky. Spiky. I'm going to have A big piece of metal with the sharp end. So who did we lose? Uh, I'm back. I'm, I'm oh, was sure. that you we lost? Yeah, I don't know what happened. Is Darren back? Yeah, I'm back here. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm going to post you guys a site. I hope it passes onto the uh, Skype. You know, Mac, I'm, that that spiky object we're talking about, I think I might have thrown that in the trash. Did you really? You know, you I, <laughs> I think I was just I think I was just sorting through my stuff, and I I don't know why I didn't keep it. Because Larry found that gun last week, and that looks like could have been a section of some other tool or weapon. You know, I. I, nah, I'm kicking myself for not keeping it. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think my intent was to keep it, but I was just going through stuff, and I, 
I pitched it. It's in the trash can there at the boat ramp. <laughs> I'll have to look. Maybe I did keep it. I but I don't think I did. I did keep the lid <laughs> for the for the can, the all stuff. Did you check the, the cokes to make sure they weren't Christmas cokes before you threw them away? I didn't throw any cokes away. Oh, all right, excellent. Yeah, all no, right. I don't throw those away. I don't have enough of those yet to to get. And then I had like a nice royal crown. Yep. Uh, or I think you found that one. Well, uh, yeah, I put that in your stuff, and I like the bottle above it. You like that one? Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, a lot of weights, and and some of these weights had markings on. So I don't know if there's if they're collectible weights. You know, do people like to collect old weights? I gave a I gave a couple of pounds of those away last week to a fisherman out there, and he could date them. He said, like the ones with the holes drilled by hand mm-hmm. are old. <laughs> and I found one that was an Indian weight. It was a rock that had been edged out. You know, you know, so a grooved and a leather thong put around it for a weight. Mm. And when you bring it out, though, I, I learned the hard way that I need to put a dropper of uh, linseed oil on that because if you don't, you put it on the roof of your shed, that dries out like overnight in this heat and shreds. Well, now, what, the weights will, will, will dry out? No, not the weight, but the little leather, the leather. around it. And that what, that's what gave it some off, on, uh, made it more real. <laughs> Authenticity? Yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, yeah, that was, that was a, a nice, uh, nice little collection there that we picked up. Yeah, hey, I found. Hey, Dave, I, I found a photo of the diver in the cup in the Atlantis's uh, website, and I just posted it out there. I'm going to post it into the chat room also, uh, and you guys can see the cup that this guy found off the wreck. Excellent. Well, those flounders are good to go. Those flounders are nice. Hey, Mac, did you get for me what you needed on the uh, Dr. Depth, or are you still... I was kind of lost out there. Nope, nope, I got it. I already bought it. Did you get the uh, side scan mosaic? Yeah. Good deal. So, so Jim, this is the photo from this this weekend? Uh, yeah, this past weekend. It's a shirtless guy in the back of the boat with a cup. Okay. I don't see that picture yet. Yeah, it's it's loading. My My internet's peddling away here. Might have to scroll through. There was a series of pictures. Okay, here uh, it'll eventually load here in a minute. So, and then Mac, you said that. Oh, oh, uh, oh, oh okay. The guy, I see him now. I see what you're talking about. He's got it in his hand. Holy, that looks like a computer yeah. cup. He's got a jolly looking face. Like, ah, oh, look what I got. I think that's one of those eat yeah. your heart out guys. Yeah, that's a once in a lifetimer. That's what he said. He did, you know, I hadn't been diving enough to really appreciate it, but I told him, man, that's a once-in-a-lifetimer. Yeah, it'd be nice to wash that out, dry it, even if you didn't take the stuff off. That patina mm-hmm. <coughs> adds a lot to it. That's cool. Um, did you guys bring the lobsters up? Uh, no, we didn't get any lobsters. We just got all the, you know, about a dozen flounder. And then buddy I was with had. Yeah, buddy I was with had a picture of uh, about a two-foot square section spread out on the deck of uh, nothing but fishing weights that we pulled up, all different size and shape fishing weights. Nice. Now, now those those flounder there, those are, <laughs> you could eat for a Door while mat. on those. Yep, doormats. Flounder, easy. Hey Jim, have you ever seen the book Hell Divers Radio? No. You need to you need to look it up. A bunch of guys out of Louisiana diving the oil rigs in the uh, 60s through the 70s, double hose rigs, going to 230, 240, chasing some giant, giant fish. Great stories. That sounds excellent. Bill turned me on to the book. Great book. I found it on Amazon for like $2. Great book. Phenomenal stories. So, Mac and Jim, what kind of diving you got planned coming up? Anything? Well, I got jumping on Saturday, I think. Uh, I probably will hit the water tomorrow. I'm thinking about hitting the uh, South Pier first and see what kind of stuff the kids lost during the weekend. (laughs) (laughs) So you know where I mean I'm going to be diving at. Yep, yeah, I know where where you're going to be diving. I've got to get back home first and uh, take care of all the work I haven't done over the last couple of weeks. So, well, the grass probably grow. won't get out this weekend, but maybe next weekend. Well, no. you won't have to do any grass picking because it's all burned. Yeah, I tell you, you guys hit with this storm and all the power outages and all the trees down. We we got lucky. We didn't have a whole lot of power outages here. Now, when did you get your power on, Dave? Two a.m. this morning. Oh no, and. The kids had 
turned on all the lights and had a couple of radios that they turned on because, well, that one didn't work. Let's try this one. So at 2 a.m., it was like, <laughs> and my wife bumped me in and said, why don't you go hook up all the refrigerators and the well and the water heater and everything to normal power? I'm like, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, God bless me. Yeah, so we only we only went about six days without power. That's how it sucked. No, I've done a hell of a lot worse. Yeah, we we yeah, had that. Most uh, people haven't. Yeah, and we had our county was the hardest hit in Ohio. We still have about twenty percent of the county without power. When it first hit, we had ninety-eight percent of the county without power. Wow, it's been uh, pretty challenging. Even trying to get fuel, whatever. We have gas stations running on generators. It's been kind of cool. And you see all the the sheeples freaking out. The sheeples. <laughs> And you stare at them. You know, they're like, oh, my God, I need milk and eggs. Dude, you never eat milk and eggs. No, but I need them. <laughs> here, here, go boil some water. Yeah, that's what that's what barbecuing's for. You get a you get a propane grill and some beer. Oh, it's been that. funny. It's been quite entertaining. And part of the biggest entertainment I've had is I'm really closely connected with our parks department. And people have been bitching that they can't use the bike trails. And I kind of cut loose. I I went old school, brought my NCO hat out, and actually blew my top. Used the F word with the mayor and uh, the director of public services. And I'm like, screw those people. If they want to ride their bikes, get their asses out there and start moving trees. <laughs> oh, so that that's what it was. It wasn't that they were being told they couldn't. It's just they need to do some cleaning. Yeah, they they were they weren't being told they couldn't. The trails were closed because there were uh, bike trails. We had about 140 trees down. And it's like, really, dude, get your ass out there and pick a leaf up. Yeah, grab a chainsaw. Instead of calling in and and bitching, get your ass off the couch. Come out and help. Probably do your ass better than riding your bike. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah. And those line guys were working. I mean, they've been going constantly. And this is a big storm. There's a lot of people without power of a long amount of a large amount of area. I will tell you that the guys who got my power back up are from Alabama. Yeah. And I actually lucked out. I've got a switch that's on the south end of my driveway that it's an auto switch. They brought power back to the end of my driveway. My next door neighbor, he's a little ways away from me. You know, we're kind of rural. He still doesn't have power. He cussed me. He's like, you suck. (laughs) But when those guys got the power back, I actually took them out an 18-pack of Miller Lite cold. I'm like, well, we can't drink while we're working. I looked at him and I said, I don't really think you're working right now. You're kind of looking like you're staring into space. <laughs> there's, there's always room for a break time. But we've got guys from Alabama out here working. we got guys from uh, Florida up here working. Don't get me wrong. They're getting compensated well. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, it's all good. The challenging part for me is I just went through a deal with a family member that had a stroke, and then we rolled right into this crap. It's like, really? Can I get 10 minutes getting Mac? Well, uh, before we end the show, uh, do you have anything you want to plug, Dave? You got the the quarry getting ready to be open? We're getting ready to open uh, 21 July. Um, the city is now well on board. The public service, public services director came down and took a look at it, and he's like, we need to repave this. So the city is now well on board. Uh, they're running water and power down. So now we'll have a shower to rinse off your gear. Power will be available. We're hoping that they uh, get the grading on the road done so it doesn't really kill the Viz. The Viz has been spectacular with this weather. Um, we've been able to move some boats. We've had some uh, phenomenal support from some of our local public safety teams that have come out and moved stuff for training. Biggest thing I can plug is getting water and good dive. Excellent, excellent. So uh, 21st is going to be the grand opening. Is there a website? Yes, it's northpointquarry.com. Also, the same weekend, we have the uh, TA Dive Club's Dan Barbecue at Portage Quarry, which is a strong competitor, which I don't mind. I'm not against a uh, easy weekend. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, will, I will I will plug that before the quarry opening because the Dive Club has been doing this for 20 years. It's a phenomenal barbecue, and all proceeds from the barbecue. I'm sorry, where did the proceeds go for the barbecue? Dan, Divers Alert Network. Divers Alert Network, excellent. So. A good cause. Uh, Jim, did you have anything you wanted to plug before we go? Not this week. Just get out there and get wet. Okay, you guys ready for the joke? And hell. (laughs) 
So you ready, Mac? I'm breathless with anticipation. <laughs> I figured you would be. Okay, let me let me resize this. I cracked a refill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I did too. I had to had to get another refill. I had uh, I I had to break into my mini bottle of uh, Captain Morgan Black. So, yeah. Which I have to say that sample is evil because now it makes me want to buy a big bottle. Okay. A scuba diver was drinking some rum after a long day of diving. While sitting at the resort bar with her husband, she says, I love you so much, I don't know how I could ever live without you. Her husband asks, is that you or the rum talking? She replies, it's me talking to the rum. (laughs) I like it. Not not a good joke. That's reality. Uh, sometimes they're just a little too close to reality. So they're almost dangerous of the species. <laughs> so until next week, go out there and get wet and stay safe. And remember, the shrews were harmed in the making of tonight's show. Recording has been completed. Didn't realize you're still recording. <laughs> awesome. <laughs>